Mark chapter four. Have you ever thought where the majority of your theology comes from? Uh, it's funny because there's things that I've learned over the years, things that I just knew that I knew, uh, but actually learned from different people that I'm not sure I should have always trusted or even things like little songs. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the, the old children's tune, This Little Light of Mine. Remember that? Um, and, you know, hide it, hide, it, hide it under a bushel. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm going to let it shine. And, um, but actually, did you know that's actually kind of biblically out of context? <laughs> Brett, oh, la-ti-da, like tear apart a children's song. Um, no, but it is funny how you kind of, you read a scripture and automatically you say, oh, well, I know what that's about. It's hiding my light and I don't want my light to be hid under a bushel. Uh, so no, you know, um, uh, or, or even, uh, you know, some artists, music. Um, it's, a, it's amazing to me how people get their doctrine from music. And a lot of people, they think, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, you can listen to whatever worship leader or worships church or, you know, movement. And, and I'd say, be careful with that one. There's some kind of Looney Tune uh, doctrines out there. Um, you know, uh, the reckless love of God, you know, like that was one of the big love. Oh, I love the tears and everything. Oh, the reckless love. And that's, I'm telling you, it's just doctrinally wacko. Um, reckless is a, uh, it's a mistake. Being reckless is bad. Um, and reckless means that you're willing to do stuff um, that might, uh, you know, hurt other things and stuff like that. It's just a bad description of the love of God. His love is perfect, not reckless. Um, and I understand what the, the artist is trying to do, but uh, as a Bible teacher, which by the way, who, who should you listen to more, the Bible or some worship leader who wrote a song? Uh, I'd go with the Bible every single time, you know. It's just funny how we can let, I'll even show you something else tonight that's kind of funny that happened to Athey Creek uh, when it comes to this kind of thing. But, but all that, uh, this little light of mine, where do we get that? Well, uh, it comes from several passages. Let your light so shine before all men. I love that little song because it is true. And even what's being said in that passage is true. But, but when you read Mark's account, you kind of realize it's, it's talking about something a little different. Again, not to be a stickler necessarily, but at the same time, I love how the word will gently correct us in our uh, thinking if we're a little off. That's why I love going through the Bible. It just kind of constantly nudges us back in, into the right, uh, right place. I call it uh, biblical bumper bowling. Uh, you know, like you don't go into the gutter if you got your Bible out because those bumpers are there, you know? I think I, I should bowl with those all the time. I, my score is much higher usually when I leave the children's bumpers up. But uh, that's what Wednesday night Bible study is supposed to be is a, a for us to kind of um, bump up against things that would put us in the gutter biblically. Uh, I love that the bumpers are there in the Bible. It keeps us safe and on track. Well, all that to say, um, we started, you know, chapter four last week, uh, verses one through 20, and we looked at the parable of the sower, but we didn't really look at it uh, traditionally like we did in the Matthew account of that, but we kind of did a little sideline talking about carpology, which is the study of the seed. And now throughout the, the world, through the history of the world, the, the seed, there's corrupt seed, um, bad seed, and then there's good seed. And the good seed is sown by the Lord, but the bad seed is sown by Satan. And, and we showed some of the things. I, I, I didn't even scratch the surface really last week on all the things we could talk about, about the corrupt seed versus good seed, bad seed. Even in the Garden of Eden, I didn't even mention, you know, the, there's the tree of life, but there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, they're like, interesting, there's bad fruit and bad seed that's seen throughout the Bible. And, and we could just go on and on talking about that. 
But uh, I'll, I'll leave you to that uh, as we kind of covered it uh, last week. Um, and some people think, okay, now we're leaving that. But I think there's still a link to uh, what we're about to read. I, I need you to remember, okay, we just got out of the parable of the sower and Jesus barely even comes up for air. He's like, he gives the parable of the sower. And then he says, and it's almost like he's adding this to that. So don't, don't separate them. Some people, oh, here's another thing that's very separate. No, verse 21 is very connected to the parable of the sower and the seed. And he says in verse 21, Jesus said unto them, is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man hath, have ears to hear, let him hear. Again, Jesus says the same thing that he said in verse nine. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, again, it's, it's that saying over and over, Jesus saying, everybody listen up, this is important. And he says it over and over and over again. The reason I say this little line, hiding under a bushel uh, is, oh no, is a little out of context because we're talking about our light, but this is talking about light, but is it talking about your light? Anybody wanna take a stab? What light is it actually talking about? Yes, the light of the word of God. And the idea is nobody's gonna be able to hide the light of the word of God. You can try to hide it under a bushel, but guess what? It says here, there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested. It's like the light will reveal, the word of, of God will reveal the darkness. Uh, you know, John's gospel talks about how men love the, the darkness because their deeds are evil. Um, uh, but the word of God is like a big light that shines flashing and illuminating um, and the Lord will not keep people in the dark. Um, and the reason that's important to understand the difference between I'm not gonna hide my light under a bushel. No, the word of God will not be hid. That's what, that's what the Lord is saying here. Um, the Lord will not keep people in the dark and with light comes responsibility. That's kind of a thing that you need to see here. With the light comes responsibility. A person who receives the truth from the word of God, that's the light shining. And, uh, and we're held responsible to the degree which we have, have had the light given to us. Um, you know, this is what I think Paul is talking about when Paul candidly in Romans chapter one says that men, when they knew God, glorified him not as God. Remember that, that kind of brutal passage of Romans one? That was one of the things, they, they knew God, they saw the light, but they said, yeah, whatever, we're not gonna glorify him as God. And so the Lord gave them over to their reprobate minds. Romans chapter one is one of the more brutal chapters of the Bible. But man is a willful sinner and the light of the word reveals that we have sin in our lives. And, and what the light does is it puts responsibility on us, which is really important to know. So it's not as much what we're supposed to do in the sense of our light, our light, but it has to do with what the word of God, the big light of thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so there's a responsibility that comes with the light of the word. Does that make sense? I hope you see the difference there. Uh, this little light of mine, hide it under a bushel. No, uh, still true, but not really the biblical meaning of the bushel hiding uh, situation. But anyway, I think that responsibility is important for us to pray about. Lord, when the light of the word shines into my life, am I allowing it to do its work? And am I feeling the responsibility out of love for the Lord to do what I see? When the, when the illumination comes, am I being responsible with what the word of God does. 
Um, and the Bible says a lot of stuff about that. You know, the, those that are the hearers of the word, but not doers, uh, um, that, um, that's, that's a problem. That's kind of what this is talking about. And he goes on again in the same context. Uh, he says, and verse 24, and he said unto them, take heed what you hear. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. And to you that hear shall be more given. For he that hath to him shall be given, and he that hath not from him shall be taken, even that which he hath. <laughs> this is an interesting thing. Again, the context here is the word of God. Now, if you've been given the word of God, um, you are supposed to be responsible with the word of God. And the idea is to pass it on. And to the measure that you receive, and you're supposed to have that same measure that you give out. Uh, and the, there's a link to uh, what you and I are supposed to do. And it's, it's, it's taking heed to what you hear. Uh, maybe even you could add sort of in this contextually is how you hear. Do you hear the word with the willingness to disperse and give out the word? Uh, what a key that is. Um, by the way, uh, the greatest thing that ever happened to me uh, it, when it comes to receiving the word and, and how I receive the word um, was when I became a Sunday school teacher. That was the best thing that ever happened to my understanding of the word because I could sit in services as a young kid and hear scriptures and sermons and I could critique them. And even as a young age, I was already doing that, uh, critiquing you know, sermons and stuff. Uh, well, he already said that once and I've heard this before and I already know this story and blah, 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 blah. That's the immature nincompoop that does that. If that's you, I'm sorry, but just calling it like it is, I was there. Um, but when I became a Sunday school teacher, I remember at 12 years old, my whole attitude changed uh, because I started teaching the word to a huge class of little kids. And uh, I suddenly had to know it well enough for me to be able to teach it with some authority. And oh, how different it was the way I listened to my own pastor when I started teaching. So it, was, it wasn't, I've already heard this, I already know the story. The question kind of becomes, do I know this well enough to teach it with authority? And do I know this well enough to be not teaching heresy or wacko doctrine? And suddenly you have this responsibility and, and it was very important to me to get it right. So not only did I listen to my pastor differently, I re-listened over and over and studied books and read other people on those passages. And I, I started saying, I wanna know this well enough to where I can, if somebody just asked me to teach on this passage on the fly, um, how would you do, you know? I suggest that if you were here last, last Wednesday night and you went through Mark chapter four, verses one through 20, I would suggest that if somebody came and said, well, tell me about the parable of the sower and what it means, I bet a lot of you could teach a lesson on that because just because you came to Wednesday night with your Bibles in hands and notebooks and um, a lot of you are taking it in, that's, that's to me the best thing is it's, it's not just about receiving it, it's what do you do with it, dispersing it. Um, I'd like to show you something that's kind of fun. Uh, this, this theme of what you, get, you know, receive, that's how much you're gonna give it out. And there's a relationship to that. I'm reminded of a story in Genesis. Would you flip over to Genesis chapter 18? Keep your finger there in Mark 4 and flip way back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 18. Um, what, one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible where God visits Abraham. There uh, in the heat of the day, Abraham's just there chilling in the door of his tent when he sees three guys. Two are angels, we know, but who's the mysterious third guy? Well, as it turns out, it's the Lord himself. I believe it's a 
pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. They call it a Christophany or maybe a theophany, depending on the way you like to call it. But, but it, we know it's the Lord himself, uh, if you know the story. So you got two angels and the Lord sitting around talking with Abraham. That's a pretty big deal, don't you think? But um, after um, this, this, you know, this whole thing where Sarah sort of laughs behind the tent when she finds out she's gonna have a child and there's, a, there's kind of a whole funny dissertation there. Um, let's pick it up here in verse 17. And the Lord is gonna say something now. This is, this is the Lord. Notice the, the word L-O-R-D is all caps. They're little caps, but that, that means it's the word um, that we have Y-H-W-H, the great tetragrammaton, which is Jehovah. So this is the Lord who's sitting there with Abraham. And it says in verse 17, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And then if you kind of go on in the story, that's when the Lord reveals to Abraham what he's about to do. And it's a, this kind of intense conversation about how he's gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember, Abraham sort of has that debate with God about, are you gonna destroy the righteous with the wicked and all this? If you remember the way that story goes, but the, the rhetorical question that the Lord asks here is fascinating to me. Should I reveal this thing to Abraham? And the answer is yes. Why does the Lord say yes? I'm going to reveal to Abraham something that's a pretty big deal. I'm gonna destroy a whole city and I'm about to reveal that to Abraham. Why did God do that? The answer is given. The Lord says, for I know him that he will, as it says there in verse 19, that he will command his children and his household after him. In other words, the Lord says here, kind of in this obscure little story of the Old Testament, the reason I'm gonna reveal something special to Abraham is because I know that I can trust him with that information. He's not just gonna hear it, write it in his notebook and go, interesting, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are gonna be destroyed, whatever. That's not what Abraham does with it. Abraham hears it and says, I'm gonna command my children and teach my children thereafter uh, about God's ways so that they don't fall into the trap of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I wonder if the Lord is looking for people, should I give this special understanding of my scriptures to Athe Creekers? Does he say, I know them, that they'll receive my word and then they'll pass it on to their children, to their neighbors, to the people that they work with? Or are they just gonna hoard the truth and they're just gonna say, I know more about the Bible than you do, neener, neener, neener. Like, uh, I don't think the Lord's gonna give you great revelation if that's all you're doing. Um, some people study just for the sake of study. In fact, I know people, it's almost a, a point of pride. I know the Bible and I've read it, you know, five times or 10 times or whatever. And people, you know, boast about this or that. But, but the question might be better, what do you do with the word that the Lord has given to you? Because, um, you know, it's, it's like this, um, you know, revelation from God about his word is not based on accumulation, but distribution. Um, the more you distribute his word, the more I think the Lord will give you um, words to teach and words to share. Um, if you're entrusted with God's word. Uh, if you've been given the word, you're responsible to take it and do something with it. If the light is shining in your life, then you should uh, so let your light shine before all men. Um, I'm reminded, it's a little teaching I like to do. 
uh, when we go to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is a fun place to go, not to be confused with the Red Sea. The Red Sea is down on the very southern tip of Israel and it's where the children of Israel crossed through. But when you go up north through the desert, you get up to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is an interesting uh, body of water uh, for so many reasons. It's unlike any other body of water in the world. It's the lowest place on earth. When you're standing at the shore of the Dead Sea, you're at the lowest spot on the planet earth. Uh, it's way below sea level. So you're in a hole in the earth kind of. Not only that, the, uh, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it's completely dead. There's nothing alive in it. Why? Because the, there's, no there's no saltier water on the earth than the Dead Sea. Now, why is the, the Dead Sea so salty? Um, well, as it turns out, it's because there's an, a beautiful inflow up at the north region of the Dead Sea. The, you know, the head, when we go on our Israel trip, I take everybody up to the headwaters of the Jordan River where water's bubbling out of the earth at Tel Dan. Uh, it's a beautiful spot where water, just fresh, cool water's bubbling. And it's, the whole area is teeming with life, uh, flora, fauna, animals, just hanging out. And as we travel down, we get to the Dead Sea and there's nothing, not even a weed growing in the ground. Everything's dead. The dirt around, there's, there's no bushes, plants. It's just dead, dead, dead. Everything's dead. What happened to the, 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 the Jordan River's flow ultimately into the Dead Sea? But here's the problem. There's no outflow. The Dead Sea is one of the few lakes that has a river going into it. And it's just, that's all there is. Uh, well, where does the water go? Well, by the time it gets to the Dead Sea, you're down in the very arid Negev desert region where the water just kind of, instead of outflowing, it just starts to evaporate. So there's no Jordan River flowing out at the south. It just stops at the Dead Sea and everything dies, including water flow. I think that's a perfect analogy of some Christians. Um, what makes a, a dead Christian when there's no outflow? <laughs> if you've got all this inflow and you're a sermon con connoisseur, you, you've got all your favorite uh, you know, uh, YouTube teachers that are all lined up and you're listening to teaching after teaching after teaching and, and you know all the fine points of this and prophecy and, and the, you know, but guess what? If you don't have anything that, where you're letting it kind of flow out, where you're sharing and giving out the word, you're kind of like the Dead Sea and people wonder, why is my walk so dead? I study the Bible all the time. Um, there needs to be a, a, a place and a time where you can uh, give it out. Uh, God's revelation is not based on accumulation, but distribution. Um, that's really what you know, we're seeing here in this passage. Back to Mark chapter four, um, you know, the, the measure that you receive the word and then, then you're, you're entrusted to uh, give out the word. So take heed, what you're taking in, you need to also be willing to distribute it. Well, verse 26 goes on and says, and he said, so is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring up and grow up he knoweth not how, for the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. First the blade, then the ear, and after the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth immediately, he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. Again, if we're talking about the same seed, which we are, that was talked about in the first part of the chapter, what is the seed a representation of? The word of God, that's the seed. And it's saying um, here that the person, you know, the person doesn't really know how the seed actually turns into fruit. Um, you know, it's funny because we don't really know how it happens either. Oh, Brett, photosynthesis. Yeah, but how does photosynthesis work? 
how does the sun work? How does, like, like we, we know only science gets us so far, but there's still things that we really don't fully understand how something can become life out of death. Um, you know, it's so funny how much we think we know everything because we can explain some things. Like for example, did you know that we can explain now the, the exact speed of sound? Exactly, it's 767.269 miles per hour. That's a pretty exacting speed, the speed of sound. But do you know why it goes 767.269 miles per hour? Nobody knows why it's locked in there. Why isn't it 7.7 or 767.268, eight one hundredths off? Why is it always the same? Um, Do you think God knows why it's that fast? He made it that way and he locked it in. Why is pi, pi? (laughs) Brett, are you talking about apple pie? No, I'm talking about pi. The number, uh, you know, like, like how do, how, where did that, that's a locked in, lo- well, it's, it's interesting because as it turns out, you know, um, the, the point that, that Jesus is making here is we really don't know. You know, the, the, the person plants the seed, gets into the ground, and then we go to sleep and the next morning there's a blade of grass. Next morning after that, there's a stalk. Next morning after that, there's a ear of corn starting. And next morning after that, you got corn. Like, how does that happen? And the answer is, we really don't know. But that's the point. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, the word of God has power in and of itself. And so what we get to see is when we use the word of God and speak the word of God, there's actual power there that we don't know how it works fully, but it just works and it brings forth good fruit. Good fruit will happen in your life when you spend time in the word. Even from the passages you've heard over and over and over again, does a farmer plant seed and see stuff grow? And say, well, I've already seen that happen, so I don't need to see that again. No, they continue to plant seed because you continue, you wanna have fruit. The same reason why you and I should continue in the word day after day, studying the scriptures. It brings forth good fruit. And that's part of the deal. And Jesus is making that point. Now, he shifts gears and goes into something even more kind of controversial here. Verse 30 And he said, whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that can be in the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becometh greater than all herbs and shooteth out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. Now what's interesting about this is we don't have him interpreting this parable. He interpreted perfectly the parable of the sower and the seed. He told the parable, later told the disciples, here's what it all means. What do you do with this parable of the mustard seed that was planted and turned into a great tree? Well, this is what I was talking about last week where I believe one of the best things you can do is to to use what we would call expositional constancy. In other words, when something is used as a picture, especially when Jesus is all in the same chapter, um, should we use the same imagery? And so, um, so far, what are the fowls of the air representing? Anybody? Satan. Now, here's the problem. You may have heard sermons about the parable of the mustard seed that turns into a great tree. And, 
And it's interesting because um, is the mustard seed good or bad? Well, bread, if you have faith that's the size of a grain of mustard seed, um, then you, know, you can even move mountains. So it must be a good thing, right? Well, is it a good seed or a bad seed? See, here's the problem. When we use this expositional constancy, we have to kind of uh, understand um, what's going on here. And in the parables, we keep the same pictures, the same circumstances from before. So in the parable of the sower of the seed, we have um, the birds equal Satan. But then you kind of wonder, suddenly we're talking about a mustard seed, which is not necessarily the same seed that we would be talking about. Because remember, um, what is a mustard seed? Does, it bring, does a mustard seed bring forth fruit? That's kind of an interesting question. What kind of seed is a mustard seed? Of itself, I can't really say for sure if it's a good seed or a bad seed, but it, in this case, I believe it does grow into something bad. Um, uh, here's the problem. Uh, the, the mustard seed grows into a tree. As it turns out, mustard seeds are not supposed to do that. Mustard seeds grow into big plants, maybe at the biggest, maybe 10 feet, but their branches aren't good enough for a bunch of birds to lodge in the branches thereof. So what's going on here? Um, you know, it's interesting because is Satan, the, the birds and his demons, are they lodging in this tree that was planted? Um, uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, good seed and bad seed in the Bible, if you've been following our carpology study, it, it can look a lot alike. Remember the wheat and the tares? They look kind of alike. Could this be Jesus saying, watch out, there can be seed sown that becomes something that it's not supposed to become. And suddenly Satan and his birds, the fowls of the air, uh, sort of lodge there in this. You say, Brett, what are you, what's your point? My point is, I think this is actually Jesus saying, watch out, there's a bad thing here. Um, <laughs> I did this teaching, by the way, uh, years ago. I think I was in like maybe 2009. And I taught about how the mustard seed parable and the birds in the tree is a bad thing. And we all kind of got it and we're like, okay. And then a few weeks later, uh, we had a, a group from the outside come in and do a Christmas thing. And it was a wonderful Christmas deal. But they were doing something, like, oh no, when I first saw it, I'm not a big fan of the people that do the artwork next to the worship. Remember how that was a big trend for a while? I'm sorry if I offend you in saying that, but I hated that. Because, uh, uh, you know, for me, worship becomes this thing that we make it. It's, it's, you don't really see it in the Bible where they're brushing and painting and all this stuff. And I thought, oh no, they brought the artist, you know? And uh, he was standing over on, this, on the Athey Creek stage painting away as the, as the concert was going. I'm sorry if you love that, I hate it. But anyway, um, but I was already kind of thinking, oh boy, here we go. Uh, and then he started painting this beautiful mustard seed tree with the birds in the tree branches. And then he explained it, everybody, this is a beautiful tree of the, that Jesus was talking about. And all of Aether Greek was like, <laughs> poor guys, probably like, man, that's a very unresponsive group. You know, as I painted my heart out for Merry Christmas and, and I painted a mustard tree with birds in it, like the Bible. Um, that's the thing I was bringing up before. Be careful, don't let your doctrine be dictated by an artist on the stage during worship time. Can I just say that? Uh, watch out for this stuff. See, as, as a guy who loves the Bible, this is the problem with the church. We let stuff creep in that really kind of shouldn't be there. Um, maybe you're saying, but Brad, I've heard sermons from pastors about how this is a wonderful thing, that it's a beautiful place. The, the tree represents good fruit and, and this good seed that makes a big, strong tree and the people of the world can come and lodge thereon. Um, the problem is you're changing up your, your analogies. Uh, and that, I think that's a problem. 
Um, and I, I, just in case you think it's just Pastor Brett being stubborn, um, I'm not the only one who said this. Uh, some great scholars have, have said this. In fact, Dr. Um, by the way, let me first remind you something from 2 Corinthians before I quote someone else. 2 Corinthians 11, it says, for such are false prophets, deceitful working, workers. And what do they do? Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Brett, are you suggesting the artist was from Satan? No, <clears throat> no, I'm not saying that. But I do think there are people in churches that have gone so far off the rails that their teaching actually are more out of Satan's handbook than the, the scriptures. And we gotta watch out and call this for what it is. Uh, this is happening today, this, this very thing. And it's gonna get worse as we get closer to the end of time. But if you don't believe me about the bad seed and the, and the expositional constancy, one of my favorites, by the way, if you, if you want a good uh, through the Bible commentary, one that I appreciate is Warren Wearsby. Um, uh, but he, he said this about the mustard seed and he calls it false growth. Uh, let me read from his commentary. He says, in the East, the mustard seed symbolizes something small and insignificant. It produces a large plant, but not a tree in the strictest sense. However, the plant is large enough for birds to sit on the branches. Since Jesus did not explain this parable, we must use what he did explain in the other parables to find its meaning. That's expositional constancy. The birds in the parable of the sower represent Satan, Matthew 13, 19. Passages like Daniel chapter four, verse 12, and Ezekiel 17, 23 indicate that a tree is a symbol of world power. Now there's expositional constancy. If you, if you follow the, the trees in the book of Daniel, it, it, remember the tree that gets cut off at the stump in the book of Daniel? It talks about world power. He's, he's correct about that. Um, these facts suggest that the parable teaches an abnormal growth of the kingdom of heaven, one that makes it possible for Satan to work in it. Certainly Christendom has become a worldwide power with a complex organization of many branches um, what started in a humble manner today boasts of material possessions and political influences. Some make this parable teach the worldwide success of the gospel, but that would contradict what Jesus taught in the first parable. If anything, the New Testament teaches a growing decline in the ministry of the gospel as the end of the age draws near. And I have to agree with that. Um, uh, what, what is this? Uh, you know, if you kind of think of it in the way Warren Wiersbe puts it, are we seeing big church organizations become more powerful and, and, and the powers of the world that are quite evil are lodging in their branches? Um, I have to say, you know, um, you might say, well, Brett, Athey Creek's a big church. Oh, we'll talk about that in a second. But, um, but we're not as big as the Catholic church. Would you agree? Um, the Catholic church is pretty huge. And I have to say, um, are there birds landing in the Catholic church? Even the Catholic church people I know say, yeah, it's pretty bad right now. We got issues. Um, and uh, and that's, that perhaps is what I think Jesus is talking about. Well, Brett, the kingdom is not here. Well, if you recall, we, we've studied the kingdom of God is coming. There's a kingdom coming, but we're also part of his kingdom when we have the king and we celebrate the king. But Jesus is warning within the kingdom parables, there is room for still evil to be sown in the midst of the kingdom. And we have to watch out for that. Uh, old J. Vernon McGee, another guy who I like to read and study uh, from a, another gener a previous generation. He said, the growth of, a, growth of a mustard seed into a tree is unnatural. 
I should say, beloved, um, just because that's the way, I love the way he talks. The growth of a mustard seed is, is unnatural. This pictures the outward growth of Christendom into great organizations, big churches, large programs, all produced by human en energy and not by the Holy Spirit. The birds and the branches are not even good. They represent Satan. I have to agree with Jay Vernon and Warren Wearsby and I say, yeah, I think these guys got it right. Well, Brett, then what are you doing being a big church with Satan birds landing in it? Well, here's the thing. This is a funny uh, thing that's happened because uh, is, is a big church from Satan. There's people right now, there's a big movement right now, of a bunch of people saying big churches, mega churches are evil. And, um, and I understand why they're saying that, but here, can I just say something about this? Um, Athey Creek, we never wanted to be a big church. I, the goal was like 500, oh, let's have 500 people to be great. And then I realized, what do you do when it gets past 500? Uh, I tried to offend people. We tried to, you know, you know like teach things that make people mad, um, but people just keep coming. So what do you do with that? Um, well, here's the thing. Uh, I believe Athey Creek, we are a giant church now, uh, whether we like it or not, but is that unbiblical? Do you remember in the first early church in one day, 3000 people were saved. You can't knock the big church because as it turns out, there was a big church right out of the gate uh, there in Jerusalem. It became a big church right out of the gate. Now it is interesting how the Lord eventually sent persecution, which splintered the big church. And I think sometimes big churches can get real in real trouble real fast. So what does that mean for Athey? Here's the funny thing. The people, remember when everybody was all raw, raw mega church back in the 90s? They were seeker friendly. It was all about making the big Willow Creek, you know, or the, or the big giant churches like Saddleback and everybody wanted big churches. The whole time I was criticizing that movement, by the way, because it's not about doing that. Athey Creek, our goal was never to say, how big of a church can we have? We want people with pulses in the seats. Like that's never been what we've wanted here at Athey Creek. In fact, uh, it's kind of the opposite. Um, we'd rather have big, mature, spiritual people rather than a big, giant church. Um, but did we do that by trying to market the church? Like, remember George Barna's book, Marketing the Church? That was all part of the big seeker-friendly movement. What's hilarious to me now, there, there's something that's, and boy, I'm gonna do some broad strokes here. Not every church falls in this category, but here's what's happened. A lot of them, the, those churches, the seeker-friendlies, they got very huge and they built it, I think, on a lot of man's wisdom. Uh, they might've been doing some really good things too, but when you build something, you know, that which you strive to gain, you have to strive to maintain. And you can't do that. None of us can maintain stuff that we build ourselves. See, that's the thing. Um, doing what the Lord's called us to do is the most important thing, but trying to, in our own strength and energies, build something to be huge just for the sake of being huge, well, that can get ugly really fast. The same churches that were pushing raw, raw mega church back in the 90s, a lot of those have closed their doors, especially in the, the whole uh, coronavirus thing. A lot of those churches are failing right now and closing their doors. What happened to them? I think that when bad times come and difficult seasons happen, the thing that you built on is re you reveal it as shifting sand. It's a sandy foundation when you build something in your own energies and strengths. Um, you know, and, and here's what's hilarious. The same people that were raw, raw megachurch back then, now they're all these people anti-megachurch. Well, the megachurch is no good. And I'll just say, it's because of their own failures uh, that the church has been failing. 
And so now they're categorizing any church that's a mega church or a big church is evil. I think they're just swinging back and forth with a pendulum of people's opinions and stuff like that. Meanwhile, what's going on here at Athey? I would humbly suggest is we've done nothing fancy. We're not outsmarting anybody. I'm doing the exact, I'm sitting on the exact same stool that I sat on 25 years ago. Uh, and I'm teaching the exact same through the Bible study that we did. Oh, we're, we're dealing with parking issues and all the exterior stuff that comes from a big church, but we're, we're still doing the very fundamental thing. Now, I have to say our leadership, we pray about this all the time. Lord, the bigger the church, the more dangerous it feels. And God forbid that the birds of the air land in the branches of a oversized church that maybe the Lord never really wanted to begin with. Well, Brett, you need to split up Aether Creek and plant other churches. We've tried that a bunch of times. Uh, and we're not, it just hasn't worked out very well. I don't know why we've done our best to do that, but I, I can say we gave it the old college try several times, many times. And as it turns out, one of the things you and I need to remember is that, uh, you know, the Lord builds his church. And, and I have to say what's happened here, we, we can't attribute it to anyone saying, well, it's because of our great leadership team. Nope, we're a bunch of, well, I sort of remind myself of Peter and the disciples. Uh, if you know what that means, in the pre-Holy Spirit era, that's, that's the Athey Creek leadership. We don't know what we're doing. Um, and we can't turn and tell everybody, here's what you do. If you want a successful church, we can't even tell you what to do other than, and even the stuff we're doing, I think if, I do believe if, if churches will teach the Bible simply, but just go verse by verse, I think that's a recipe for what the Bible says to do. Give attendance to the reading of scripture, not great sermons of, of Brett's opinions or things like that. Oh, I could go on and on, but um, I don't think God's against the megachurch. I do think God closes megachurches that become all about the megachurch. I do think God closes the churches when it becomes about the pastor and the celebrity pastor. The Lord will close that church and he does all the time. It's happening all the time. Um, but I, I think the church's attitude about the mega church is we've just been flailing back and forth over the decades. As a, as a guy in ministry for a lot of years, it's almost, it's, if it wasn't so sad, it's almost laughable how the church just goes back and forth, fads and fancies, you know, about what's the greatest, latest thing in the church. I think consistency, just teach through the Bible, keep it simple, make it not about us and keep the focus on the Lord. As soon as man gets the credit, I think the Lord will shut the doors. Um, as soon as the church embraces the word or the world and lets the birds of the air, LGBTQ, if they let that land in their branches, they're done. They're just done as a church. Uh, I think we've seen critical race theory landing in the branches. Uh, you know, churches that put white privilege and, and all this stuff about worldly views on racism even though racism, I think, is, is something we read all about in the Bible. The Bible handles race, racism perfectly. The issues are right here, not um, white fragility. If you put that as your book on your church website, white fragility, don't be shocked when your doors are being closed. Um, you're letting the birds, that's my bird sound. Um, you're letting the birds land in your tree. Um, anyway, Enough ranting on that. <laughs> but could I just say pray? Because man, we want Eighth Creek to stay simple. We want to keep focused and we don't want the birds of the air to land here. And that's an important thing. Well, uh, verse uh, 35, uh, it says, and the same day, 
when the evening was come, he said unto them, let us pass over to the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship, and there were also with them other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And when he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on the pillow, and they awoke him saying, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And we saw this on Sunday and Saturday when we went through this on the weekend. Uh, if you missed that, we covered this in detail. Um, but it's, it's something you gotta understand. This story now continues. Uh, even though there's a chapter break, keep all that in mind. They just crossed the sea and they made it through the storm and they're asking, wow, what manner of man that he controls the wind and the waves. He, they're also about to learn that he controls even the demons and the devil. Um, they're learning their lessons of what kind of power Jesus has. And we know now that he's power of the wind and the sea but we're also gonna see power over demonic entities. Verse one of chapter five. And they came over to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes, also known as Gadara. Um, and it says, um, it says, by the way, this, the men of Gadara, um, uh, before we get into this, uh, don't forget who these people are. Um, and if you're with us in Matthew, and what was it, Matthew chapter eight, we covered this story uh, and it's kind of an important thing, but uh, I wanna show you the same story here. But there's a few things we learn more in this story than we had in Matthew eight. But uh, the Gadarenes, the land of the Gadarenes, verse two, it says, and when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains and the chains had been plucked asunder by him and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar, he ran and worshiped him and cried with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And when he asked him, what is thy name? And he, and he answered and said, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was near unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2000 and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. 
And they that saw it told them how it befell him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but said unto him, go home to your friends, tell them how great things the Lord has done for thee and hath compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. We have the first mention here in the Bible for you hermeneutic people, the first mention of deviled ham uh, here in the Bible. Uh, sorry. Uh, um, do you guys remember a little background helps this story a lot. Uh, why is it called Gadara or the land of the Gadarenes? Well, do you remember the, the Jews that settled in this region were part of a two and a half tribe uh, group um, that actually, um, if you recall, it was Numbers chapter 32 is probably the best. This uh, verses one through 33, you can jot this down in your notes, where Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, do you remember the story? Um, they're all traveling with Moses, you know, in the, in the wander, wanderings. And then finally they get to the Jordanian side and they're just right there before they go into the promised land. And the Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe men said, hey, Moses, we really want to just stay here. We like this area. It's a good place to raise cattle. And do you remember Moses, what was his response? Anybody? Was he like, sure, whatever. He was furious. He was furious with them. Why? He said, what are you guys gonna do? Camp over here? Why, why the other, you know, nine and a half tribes go off and have to fight the giants in the land of the promise. And you guys are just gonna chill out over here and make your brothers do battle against the Canaanites. And uh, Moses said, no way am I gonna allow that. Well, the people said, well, I'll tell you what, give us this land, we'll, our men of war will go over into the promised land, we'll fight with you guys. And when all the enemies are subdued, then we'll come back. Do you remember that little story? So Moses seemingly reluctantly, if you ask me, says, all right, um, but if you don't do this, it'll be upon your heads. Like Moses was brutal to these guys. Well, sure enough, as the years went by, if you follow the story, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they did just that. They went and fought the battles. Um, and as soon as it was fairly subdued there in Israel, then they, they came back and settled in this land that is on the east side of the Jordan River, just outside of the land of promise where God wanted the people of God. And so um, that's why this land, by the way, is called Gadara after the Gadarenes or the, the people of Gad. That's who these people are. Fast forward, you know, uh, you know, many, many centuries. Who are these people now? Well, it's interesting because if you know the, the story, uh, it's, kind of a, it's kind of interesting because um, not only did they miss out on the promised land, they, they thought that land in Jordan was pretty nice, but it was nothing compared to the land flowing with milk and honey. They settled for second best the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And if you recall, after they settled that land, fast forward to 740 BC, when Tiglath-Pileser III, the Assyrian, uh, of the you know, Assyrian Empire, was brutal at that time. Uh, the, 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 by the way, it was, um, the Assyrians were a complex of uh, four cities, uh, and the whole complex would be called later Nineveh, kind of brings something to mind. But um, what happened? When Tiglath the Lasser III came through that region, guess what happened to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? They were crushed. They were the first ones to be crushed. Out of all of Israel, 
the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were the first ones to be taken up and they made them slaves, mostly. There were a few remnants of the Gadites that were left there, but most of them were taken off to Assyria where they became slaves to the Assyrians. Um, by the way, God's plan was to use pagan Nineveh's example to teach the covenant people, Israel, how inexcusable their impenitence really was. Just one generation earlier than that happening, Jonah preached to Nineveh and the people of Nineveh repented 40 years later these people, the same uh, exact people, uh, get judgment from God, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. One thing to remember is when you think you're pulling it off, you're, you're actually not. The wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. The Reubenites, the Gadites, they were, they were a compromising people. They, they didn't go into the promised land. They hung back and liked where they were, and they were the first to be picked off. Not a good place to be. If you're a Christian living in this world, in the world of compromise, being compromising in your faith, um, it's not a, a safe place to be. Remember the old uh, race, I talked about this when we were in Matthew, devils take the hindmost. It was a race back in the 70s they used to do where you know, you'd have like 10 guys start at the starting line and the gun would go off, it'd be 10 laps. So it was a fairly long, grueling race. But the, the, the reason the whole race was so different is the last person on each lap would have to be plucked out of the race. The devil takes the hindmost. So it changed the pacing. You know, they'd, they'd sort of be jogging around the track and I don't wanna be the last guy in the first lap because you'll be out on the first lap. So it would, the pace would pick up at the finish line. Everybody'd be sprinting. And then all of a sudden the last guy, he'd be picked out. So then you have nine guys and they're kind of jogging around the track and it picks up and it's a sprint and it just was grueling. Um, but that, that race reminds me of what this race of life, uh, the human race is like the devil picks off the last. The person is just hanging back and not running the race to win the prize. And I think that's what compromise does. Um, the idea is sort of these people, instead of being hot and serving the Lord, they were lukewarm. I'm reminded of like the way the book of Revelation talks about it. Revelation 3, 15 and 16. I know your works that you are neither hot or cold, but I would that you be hot or cold, or cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. This is sort of a New Testament verse that's a summary of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Um, uh, plug in with your Christian friends. Be part of the church. Don't be half-hearted. Be sold out. Whatever you do, do heartily, not hardly, heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Don't be on the fringe in, in your uh, love for the Lord. Don't be on the fringe when it comes to your morality and the things you allow in your home and your life. Um, man, uh, so this, this is where you fast forward from the, the Syrian Tiglath-Pilasar thing all the way to the time of Christ. What are these Jews doing now? They're in Gadara raising pigs. Does that sound like a very Jewish thing to do? Uh, the Jews don't raise pigs. Uh, you know, it wasn't until the 60s that it was still the law of the land. You cannot raise pigs at all. Now, they still don't allow raising pigs in Israel unless there's like loopholes. And I've told you about the, the pigs that they built the big deck. that's <clears throat> like three, two, three feet off the ground and the pigs are being raised on the deck. They're not technically touching the ground in Israel. Uh, so they raise pigs and stuff. There's another farm. It's a kibbutz actually, a whole kibbutz that raises pigs for the purpose of science uh, and study. Uh, they use the pigs for science and study. You can look this up. And, um, but it's really funny because those that did an article from the Times of Israel, uh, they were talking about how the Jews, they raise pigs for science. But in, 
any, in case they have any extra pigs, they do slaughter them and sell them for uh, just because of excess. And they just usually have tens of thousands of extra pigs uh, at the end of their st- scientific study. Uh, it's, it's a funny article. You can look it up. Anyway, um, so what's going on here? Well, this tells us a little bit about where these Jewish people are at. They're raising pigs and Jesus comes on the scene with this demon-possessed guy. I think this tells us a lot about what's going on in that region and what have you. Now, um, um, what, what's the deal, by the way, with all the demon stuff that goes on around Jesus? Why is there all these stories of demons and why don't we see demons like they did back in those days? Well, first of all, I think we do. I think we often misdiagnose when we see demonic activity. We call it homelessness or drug addiction sometimes or mental illness or... Um, fill in the blank, um, you know, but um, the way we handle it, we medicate, we give a tent and a syringe and say, good luck. Uh, that's the way we're handling. I think a lot of, and by the way, if you're saying, brother, you're saying that drug addiction is demon possession. There's a link in the Bible to pharmakia, the Greek word pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy to demonic entities and, and power. I believe drug taking and addiction is opening a door to demonic kinds of things that go on in a person's life. Uh, that's, that's something that the Bible actually has been teaching us for years. Um, but demon, demon possession is a very real thing. And um, I've seen that a lot when I've traveled to other countries, you see it more. Um, could it have been heightened because Jesus is walking around? Do you think, you know, there's the, the devil is not omnip, uh, omnipresent like God. Do you understand that? The devil can't be more than one place at one time like God can be. Um, so he's spread thin. And so how does he spread himself out with demonic uh, armies? And I believe that they're probably limited to a certain degree. Um, and I, don't you think the devil threw kind of his varsity team at Jesus when Jesus was walking the earth? Like if you're the devil and you're wanting to mess up Jesus, you, you, you get your A game on and get all your big demons. I think that's what was going on, by the way. Why was Jesus seeing all these demons, casting out demons, uh, probably because there was a heightened level of demonic stuff due to the fact that Jesus was on the scene. Um, but uh, I, I, I think this is interesting because um, not only is this one demon, but look at verse nine, uh, where Jesus says, you know, what's your name? And he says, my name is Legion. Interesting name. Now we know that there's at least 2000 demons in this Legion because it says that. Um, there in verse 13, parenthetically, they were about 2,000, it says. Um, but his name being Legion, that would have been a number that the people would have known. Um, for example, uh, uh, you, you remember a centurion? Does anybody remember how many men did a centurion have in a Roman army? 100. And if, uh, then uh, there was a cohort, which was actually six centuria. So how many men would that be? 600. And then you had... 10 cohorts, which they called a legion. How many people would that be? 6,000. So that, that's the idea. That's where the word legion comes from. It's the Roman army description of 6,000 soldiers. Um, so Brett, are you saying it's 6,000? I don't know. All I know is 2,000 pigs went into the water. Well, Brett, that's 2,000. But could it have been more than one? Could the Lord have assigned three pigs to every, or three demons to every one pig? I'm just making the point that there's a lot of demons here and it's not just necessarily 2,000. It's the 2,000 pigs uh, that were uh, hurled into the sea because of this. Now, 
Um, so the pigs are gone, they're dead. Jesus heals this guy. And the description, he's fully clothed now, which implies he was running around naked, shrieking and freaking out. And nobody could keep him under control. Um, boy, I've got a story I probably don't have time to go into, but I remember, I'll go into it then, I guess. I, I guess I'm gonna do it. I'll give you the quick version. But um, there was this woman in our church when I was growing up, and um, um, I'm just gonna say it. Uh, I, I really believe she was demon-possessed. And it, and it was such a strange thing. And her, her, she had opened up her life to evil stuff uh, very early. And you say, well, she was going to church. I don't believe a, a, a demon can possess a Christian, but I'm pretty sure this lady was not a Christian, but she was going around the church acting. So, and there's biblical examples of this, acting like she was just part of the team, uh, but she wasn't. And, and she, would, she would snap in and out of these weird modes one minute you'd think she's this nice grandmotherly, sweet little gal just kind of hanging out with people. And the next minute you would think, what in the world am I looking at here? And it was really crazy. But this one particular afternoon, and Tad, you remember this probably because it was left an imprint, <laughs> literally. Um, uh, this, this lady um, got in the parking lot, just got into this mode where her voice got deep and crazy eyes. And, um, and she, she literally... Five men could not hold this little old lady down from hurting herself and hurting others. Five full-grown men trying to stop her from doing this. And, um, uh, and it wasn't until we were able to just, you know, not, ah, command you, devil. We didn't do that. We, we said, um, you know, the Lord rebuke thee, Satan. And um, we were calm, cool, prayed. And then suddenly she just kind of wilted and dropped to the ground. Uh, we weren't on TBN. We weren't filming it for everybody's entertainment. We didn't throw wheelchairs off the stage. Um, but this is just a thing that happened in our parking lot of, at our church. And it was, it was nothing, we didn't ask for it. We weren't you know, looking for crazy heebie-jeebie stuff. It's just something that actually happened. And uh, we're convinced, all of us that were there, that she was literally demon-possessed. And the Lord delivered her ultimately from that. Um, it's real, we just don't see it that much. Um, if you wanna see it, I think go downtown. I think that's very real. And I'm not joking. I think there's a lot of demonic fruit of the drug abuse and the opening up to evil that downtown is presented. And I think homelessness, we're misdiagnosing a lot of homelessness as a lot of things that might be more demonically, um, um, you know, the problem. We should be praying about that. Because uh, I think we're throwing answers that aren't working right now at that problem, largely. But then you look at the townsfolk's response. Um, when, they, when they come out to see what happened and they see this guy clothed in his right mind, what do you think they did? Wow, hooray! Jesus delivered this poor guy who's been tearing everything up for years. And were they excited? No. Verse 15, it says, and they were afraid. The power of Jesus freaked them out. And you know what? I've seen that happen too. It's almost like sometimes people would rather have the evil power present and just kind of live with it than actually have the power of Christ who comes and disrupts. Um, why were they so afraid? Why shouldn't they be happy about all this? Um, they knew there was a dark power at play with the man before. And they even, it says, they tried to chain him up. They knew that there was an issue. So they tried to chain him up, but he would just snap the chains. So, you know, they weren't afraid of that. They were more afraid of the power that saved him and killed their pigs than the power that was there destroying this poor guy. They were content in their ways and they were afraid of the change that would come 
Uh, they wanted mediocrity. They didn't want an uncomfortable challenge to, uh, to get back to what good Jews do, not growing pigs and not letting some demon-possessed guy be outside their town with no help at all. Um, you know, there were other towns where Jesus healed people and delivered people from demons and people spread the word and more people came and were excited. But this town, well, this town um, of Gadara, these guys cared more about their pigs than they cared about people. That's the sad thing. And that starts to haunt me just a little bit as we live in Portland. Do we care more about our pigs than the people that are downtown, that are possessed? Um, I think we have elected people that are only feeding the problem and it's our fault that that's happened. Um, I think that we're, we've come up with a wrong diagnosis of, of how we can and should be helping people uh, in the Portland area and all around the world for that matter. Um, you know, caring more about your own priorities as long as you have yours and your house and your money and your lifestyle and your business. Who cares that there's demon-possessed people in our back porch? And if there's a disrupting of that, does that perturb us? Uh, Gadara, most scholars, most archeological digs have proven that Gadara was a wealthy area. And it was part of the Decapolis, which is a, the word Decapolis. Deca means 10, polis means city. And there were 10 cities that were quite uh, flourishing, quite powerful, and uh, they didn't wanna be disrupted. Philippians reminds us, you know, this. It says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We're told to care about others. These people cared about their pigs more than they cared about the people that were being hurt. Um, when was the last time you looked on someone else who was hurting and cared for them? Are you one of those people who's like, I'm just caring for myself. Uh, let people do whatever they want. I hear that from, well, if people wanna go take drugs and live in tents, well, uh, good for them. Uh, they, they've made that choice. Uh, I don't think that's the way of Christ. I think we have to be people who are willing to get into the dirt. Uh, the citizens of Gadara didn't care about uh, anything but their own well-being. That's why they, they responded the way they did. Um, you know, what is pure and undefiled religion? Uh, James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Um, do we have pure and undefiled religion? Are we people that are just caring about ourselves and not looking on the things of others who are in need, caring less about people than other things? Um, the world has such a crazy attitude right now. Um, you know, there's been a big debate about a lot of things about abortion and stuff, but did you see this article? Um, this is a true story. Uh, Vox comes out against aborting embryos that can feel pain. You're like, good, but only chicken embryos. Did you see this? This is not the bee. Uh, the Babylon bee is normally satire. This is not satire. This is called not the bee. Um, uh, and uh, basically the egg industry brutally, this, this is a Vox article. You can look this up. Um, um, Vox article says, the egg industry brutally grinds up billions of male chicks each year because they can't lay eggs. But, uh, but new tech could change that. Scientists believe that chick embryos could potentially feel pain as early as seven of their 21 days of incubation. That means that even the most advanced in, in ovo uh, sexting male chick embryos could still be experiencing suffering. Uh, live action, which is a pro-life news, commented on this article from Vox. And they said, for Vox, it's an abhor abhor abhorrent injustice when chicken embryos are destroyed and if they can feel pain, 
but it's empowering when a woman has an abortion uh, if her human embryo fetus can feel pain. Uh, there's such a weird double, triple standard on abortion and what have you. Um, we care about saving the whales by far more. The same people that are all save the whales could care less about the human embryo fetus uh, baby in the mother's womb. Um, this, this, I, I liken this caring more about pigs than caring about people. Uh, it's the same attitude that these people of Gadara, uh, they didn't care uh, about this man at all. They also didn't want Jesus anywhere near them. Um, in America, we put a clinical name on what the Bible calls possession. I think we have to reconsider uh, that as Christians and maybe help bring Christ, who's the answer to the possessed person. Um, all that to say, um, they cared more about their pigs than people. They cared more about their cash and their occupation than Christ. And they asked Jesus to leave. Um, what an interesting story here. Now, before we pack it up, there's a couple more things here. There, there's three interesting prayers that are in this little tidbit before we pack it up. I wanna show you uh, these three interesting prayers uh, from Gadara. Um, the first prayer, believe it or not, uh, was verse 10. Did you see verse 10? It says, um, and he, legion, the demons, besought Jesus that he would not send them away out of the country um, but verse 12, the devils besought him, saying, send us into the swine. So that was the prayer of the demons. Question. So let's put that up. So, so the, the prayer from the demons. What was Jesus's answer to the prayer of the demons? Yes or no? He said, yes. He gave an affirmative answer to their prayer. Can we go into the swine? Yes. So there it is. That's kind of an interesting thing. The answer is yes. Prayer number two was from the people of the city. Look at verse 17. And they, the people of Gadara, began to pray him to depart from their coasts. They asked Jesus to leave them from, from the Gadarenes. They were praying, please get out of here. What was the answer Jesus gave them? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah I will leave, um, which is such a tragic thing. Um, be careful. Some, some prayers you hope the Lord doesn't answer yes when it really should be a no. Um, but the third prayer is even more shocking. It comes from the, 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 the guy that was saved, the demon-possessed man that now is in his right mind. And, and it's in verse 18 and 19 where it says, and when he was coming to, Jesus went to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him, Jesus, that he might be with him. Can I please be with you, Jesus? He wanted to be a disciple. He wanted to get in the boat with them and say, man, I'm here with you. What was the answer he gave him? Jesus suffered him not. The answer was no. Isn't that interesting? Yes to the demons, yes to the goofy gatherings, and no to the saved man who just wanted to follow Jesus. The, the reason I point out these interesting prayers from Gadara is um, I think it's important to understand the Lord knows what's best and he has a plan and a purpose and we need to be careful uh, about our prayers and understand we should always be saying, Lord, your will not my will. Why did Jesus not want him to follow him? Because Jesus knew this demon-possessed guy would have a much greater ministry going around the Decapolis cities being a testimony, a living testimony of what Jesus was able to do for him. And it says that, that he went around the Decapolis, verse 20, publishing great things Jesus had done for him. And all the men did marvel. Don't you love that? All the men did marvel. Um, interesting, uh, there's a, there's a uh, poem that I read in Matthew, but I'll read it one more time here in Mark uh, that I think is pretty cool. It's, it's called The Poem of the Gadarenes. 
Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we love swine. Oh, get thee hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine, his soul. What care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole? Since we have lost our swine, and Christ went sadly, he had wrought for them a sign of love and hope and tenderness divine. They wanted swine. Christ stands without your door and gently knocks. But if you're gold or swine, the entrance blocks. He forces no man's hold. He will depart and leave you to the treasures of your heart. No cumbered chamber will the master share but one swept bare. By cleansing fires, then plenished fresh and fair with meekness and humility and prayer. There he will come, yet coming even there, he stands and waits and will no entrance win until the latch be lifted from within. I like that. Joseph H. Odell wrote that poem, but what an interesting way to end that. The, the, the people of Gadara, their latch was closed to Jesus, and so he left. Um, are there things that you and I need to let go of um, in our lives, things to give up and say, we don't care more about pigs than people, cash than Christ, our stuff versus a savior. Watch out for that temptation to be caught up in the Gadarene mentality. Amen? Amen. Lord, as we look at this story, once again, we're reminded of that truth. Oh, how we need more of you and not to drive you out of our, our towns and our communities. Lord, we need Jesus. So I pray that, that your church would be a place where um, your word shines light and then the word shines through us and that we would let our light shine before all men. We live in dark days, Lord. Give us wisdom. Um, show us how to better care for the, um, the people that are in, in our town that are totally messed up as the number just keeps growing. And we keep throwing so-called solutions, but they fail every time. Just like these men of Gadara tried to fix the problem, but it was totally off. We know that you are the answer. So show us, Lord, how to accommodate that and to be a part of that. Um, Lord, forgive us for not caring. I pray that we would have a heart, even as you had of compassion for the unlovely, for the unsaved. Give us your mind, Lord, I pray. So as we have studied these passages, give us, Lord, good fruit from the word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.